chapter 6. This chapter has some doctrinal things that may, we may just get right through them or we may pause. It's okay, whatever, however we handle it. Um, Solomon's speech at the prayer of dedication, Solomon said, the Lord has said that he dwells in thick darkness, but I have truly built a majestic house for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So in thick darkness, God would be concealed, but here the temple would be there for everyone to see where his dwelling is on earth, the, the dwelling, the symbolic dwelling of the, of the temple. Then the king turned and blessed the whole assembly of Israel. He's out in front of the temple and out, in, out on the steps, I, I would believe, that, so that the people would see him. And there are, I would, I would, if I were there, I would have been up on walls and had the kids up on a rooftop. And so everybody, not just the leaders, but everybody who could see, could possibly see. And what's Jerusalem made of? Stone and brick, mostly. The thing about stone and brick is they echo pretty well. You know, better than wood. Wood kind of absorbs, but stone and brick are harder and they echo. And if, if also you speak and then you have a shouter, uh, Solomon's words could have gone out for everybody to hear. A shouter is a, a relay person. So Solomon says one thing, or as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount probably, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then Peter, 30 yards away, would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then Thomas, 30 more yards away, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it would go on and on and on like that. So, uh, so Solomon now preaches. Solomon said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, what he said with his mouth to my father David, he has fulfilled with his hands. What God promised in person to David, God has done for us in person. Solomon, not allowing the people to forget that God is the one who provided this. This is a gift of God. Doesn't matter what the name of the building company was. God, by the way, who is the guy who was in charge of the building and the construction crews for Solomon? It's a guy, well, Hiram was the one who did the, did the building specifically. Um, but one of the construction gang heads was a man named Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And down the road, he's going to be the one who gets the northern ten tribes. An administrator, a good administrator. The Lord said, From the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I did not choose a city from all the tribes of Israel to build a house for my name to be there. I did not choose a man to be ruler over my people Israel, but now I have chosen Jerusalem as the place where my name will be, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So Solomon reminding the people what God said to him. Um, Solomon establishing his position by simply quoting God. Pretty good way to do it. I've done this, but God told us to do it. God told David to do it. You guys all remember David, Solomon is saying, and now here it is. David had been dead at this time for about, let's see, fourth year and for like nine, ten years. You know, because he began building in the fourth year of his reign and then it's taken a while to build the thing, but now it's done and here we go. Yeah, so um, by the way, that's one of the reasons why the EHV, the translation we're following, it does not have 
quotation marks at the beginning of verse 4. One of the decisions we, we made as translators was there are some places in the Old Testament especially where you have quotes within quotes within quotes and it's a nightmare to format the quotation marks and most people don't understand. So we made a conscious decision. If there's going to be a big block quote like this from Solomon, we're not even going to put a quotation mark there. We're just going to indent it. So in the, in the, in the EHV text, not here on the screen, um, it's indented. And then Solomon can quote the Lord and you have just regular quotes. Otherwise, sometimes you have double quote, single quote, double quote, single quote, double quote, you know, and a period in there somewhere. It's just crazy. And, and there are places like that. And so how do we get rid of them if possible? So we decided to do it with formatting. Because quotation marks are an invention of English anyway. You know, so it doesn't matter how we do it. It was on my father David's heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. However, the Lord said to my father David, that it was on your heart to build a house for my name was a good thing to have on your heart but you will not build the house. Your son, who will come from your own body, will build the house for my name. Solomon, again, establishing why he did this. David wanted to. David had the plan, but God said, don't, your son will do it. I'm David's son. I did it. This, this is elegant, simple writing, um, which is not easy to do. Actually, but it's very clear for the people to understand and remember. You know, after 10 years, might it be good to remind the people of what's going on? Yeah. For one thing, the 20-year-olds were just kids when this all started. So it's good to, to keep it in front of the people. Why do we do it this way? Why don't we do it some other way? New people come to St. Paul's all the time and ask us, how come you don't kneel in groups for communion? You know, well, 22 years ago, we did. You know, but we stopped 19 years ago. And there's a reason why we stopped and, and so forth. So the, remembering the history of the thing is important for the people. Well, I suppose an adopted son or something. But just, just a reminder for David, this is also not your grandson. Just your immediate son. You know, your own, your own flesh and blood. That's how we would probably put it today. That is, isn't that the awe of the dad in the hospital? You know, remember looking at my son Jonathan and uh, delighted that my folks were there and everything and then they left and I thought, wait a second, who's taking care of the baby? And I realized, oh, I'm his dad. You know, there's just that moment, that shocked moment of, oh yeah, I'm the dad. Uh, that, that, that just comes there. I, I, I'm the world's worst dad. No, no other father's ever thought that, I'm sure. But, um. And Solomon stood in front of the altar of the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Why do we tell our children, fold your hands and close your eyes? And to stop Timmy from poking Danny. You know, yeah, I think I, there's... there's uh, it focuses the attention. Also, a, a physical gesture can remind one that I'm praying now. You know, especially if you don't do that for any other kind of praying or any other kind. You don't do this for almost anything else that you do. You know, unless you're really, really having trouble with the hammer. 
You know, you don't really do this, and you don't, you don't even hold a baseball bat that way, or an axe. You know, you don't, you don't do it this. So that's a good, and close your eyes, focuses your attention. You know, so you're not doing what little kids do in church, right? Looking around, uh, playing a game with a fan to make it go backwards with your eye if you spin your head the right way exactly. Um, maybe none of you have done that. Now you're going to try, I know. But I was back in, in uh, Leeds at my home congregation a month ago and in, in, in worship in my home church with my, sitting with my uncle. I felt around the side of the pew to the rosette that's there on the side and I, and I realized it still spins the way it did when I was a kid. I thought, I shouldn't be doing that. I'm almost 60 years old. I shouldn't be spinning this, but I did. You know, bad boy. Solomon had made a bronze platform and had placed it in the middle of the courtyard. What do we call that kind of a big platform for a guy to stand on when he preaches? Pulpit. That's, that's a pulpit. It was seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet tall. He stood on it. There he knelt in the presence of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, um, Our pulpit is about the size of a Roman chariot. It's about four feet across with a hole in the back. That's about what a charioteer would, would have had in Roman. Just enough room for a guy and a driver, you know, if they liked each other, to be there in the chariot together. Seven and a half feet is only a little bit bigger than that. It's not really room enough to pace, is it? Not, not really that much extra room. Why would it be, why would Solomon have made this thing just a little bit bigger like this? What does the seven and a half feet get him? Well, I'm wondering just physically what, well, I think we see it in the verse here. I, th I think I was actually wrong this morning. I, it, it occurred to me later this afternoon. Um, I thought it might have to do with his robes, but I think it has to do with something else. Probably in the, in the high fives or six feet or so like that, something like that. But I think that it was because he had to kneel. You know, you've got a gown on, you've got to kneel, and three, four feet might not get, you know, when you're getting up again, if you're going to do it with any amount of grace and dignity, you might need, uh, you know, for one thing, a servant to help you. So have somebody help him stand up in a minute or whatever. So, or he might have had a staff, but I think a little extra, I think Solomon figured it out, that he needed a, a thing the size of that table and not something smaller like our pulpit would be. You know, just anyway. He, um, okay, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, this is his prayer. Again, just indented in the EHV. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heavens above and on the earth below. God is unique. You keep the covenant of mercy and faithfulness with your servants who walk before you with all your heart. God makes promises and keeps them. You have kept the whole world which you spoke to your the, the, the word rather, which you spoke to your servant, my father David. What you have said with your mouth, you have fulfilled with your hand, as can be seen today. He said that earlier, and this kind of prayer is sometimes called didactic prayer. It's prayer that also teaches. Um, when do we do that in church? A prayer that also informs. We pray for others who are sick. Yeah, 
Bless the family of so-and-so who passed away. Most of us didn't know that, and now we found that out, right? Things like that. But also there are things where a prayer may simply remind us of the things that God has done. And a church anniversary, where we might say the dates out loud. Heavenly Father, in 1865, you established this congregation through your servant, Mr. Buck, who lived across the street, you know, and in 1882, after it had been destroyed by a great storm, you rebuilt it with the help of, and the, and the, and the vision of Pastor uh, uh, Rhyme and Pastor Albrecht, who succeeded him, and on and on, you know, just some things like that that would remind us of the truth, but might teach people what's gone before, that kind of thing. Now, Lord God of Israel, guard for your servant, my father David, the promise you made to him when you said, you will never fail to have a man sitting on the throne of Israel in my presence if your sons guard their ways by walking in my law just as you have walked before me. Um, so that was a promise with a warning attached, wasn't it? How long did Israel get to go before their kings no longer walked in the way of God. Well, this is 970, and they got to about 530 B.C. Was that 240 years or so? Now, O God of Israel, let the words of which you spoke to your servant, my father David, be confirmed. But will God really dwell with man on the earth? Truly the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Here we come to one of the great proof texts in all of doctrine about God's essence. What is taught in this verse? God is, what word would you use? Could be omnipresent. Even, even above that in the list of doctrinal points, um, we would probably use absolute and infinite and then omnipresent as a way of explaining those things. Let me just show you how this kind of works. God's essence, number one, he is absolute. There'll be another one below this, but his, in his absoluteness, he is self-sufficient. God does not depend on anyone else to be made or to support him. He is living and he is in fact life. Where God is, is life. What happens when most people touch a dead body? Nothing. What happens when Jesus comes into contact with a dead body? Comes to life. He is life. He is absolute, not in a positive sense, which means that he didn't bring himself into being from another being. Which uh, the, the Greek gods claim that. But he is absolute in the negative sense, that he was not brought forth ever, but always is. And I use the words positive and negative in a grammatical way, not a good, bad way. Okay? God is simply, was, was never brought forth. He always was. In fact, that's in God's name, which is I am. There never was a time when God was not. So. Now, God is absolute. Oh, something, Richard? Well, just in the creed, when we say that the Son is begotten of the Father, mm -hmm. The Son does come from the Father. He is begotten of the Father. But he is eternally begotten of the Father. The Nicene Creed makes that clear. That, that, that the relationship of the Father and the Son 
is eternally that relationship, not just in one point in time. They are always father and son. And the spirit then, the word that the creed uses to explain the spirit is the one that Jesus uses. He, the spirit proceeds from father and son. So the, the father does not proceed from the spirit or the son. The father is. The son is begotten of the father because that's the word that, um, that is used in the gospel of John. And then proceeds is the word that Jesus uses to describe the relationship of the Spirit coming out of both Father and and Son. This is not easy stuff. This is complicated stuff. But it is clear. It's at least clear. Um, Even if it's beyond sometimes our understanding, it is at least clear. The, the, The better we explore and understand these characteristics, and by the way, the next book we're going to do after 2 Chronicles is probably going to be 2 Corinthians. And we'll go deeply into some of these doctrines in 2 Corinthians because it's the book, really, of salvation in the New Testament. Um, so we're going to get to a gospel. I, we, I had a request for that. Uh, but I want to do 2 Corinthians, which is the shortest of Paul's longest three letters. Does that encourage you? It's only 13 chapters. You know. um, so a couple weeks. Um, but uh, so God is absolute. He is also infinite. Um, and Psalm 145, his greatness no one can fathom. So God is infinite not because he is free from quantity, but by reason of his essence. It should, not be, it should be singular. And his perfection. Um, and I, I was going to say the reason we study these things is so that we can better defend ourselves against false doctrine. So that's one of the reasons the creeds were written, is to combat false doctrine. And our, and our nine Lutheran confessions, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, Luther's small catechism, his large catechism, and uh, the small called articles, which was his polemic against Catholicism. Then the Augsburg Confession, the Declaration of Independence of the Lutheran Church, it has an explanation called the Apology. And then the big formula of Concord to unify all Lutherans. Um, those nine confessions are there because they were combating errors and, and helping us to better understand. Yes? How, how old is the of those times? 1580 of those documents. Have we not had any new errors recently? We have, and we're in the process of writing a new confession. We're doing it carefully with the church, uh, the... the, um, the um, the CELC, the Confessional Evangelical Lutheran Church, meets every three years, beginning back in 1992, I think it was. Um, and every three, and a, a new piece gets added to that long confession as we as we proceed. We'll see what we do with it when it's done. But that's all all confessional Lutheran churches with whom we're in fellowship worldwide are a part of that the construction of that document and participated in its formulation. I quoted it today in my email devotion. Um, Mabidi, uh, Dr. Mabidi, Dyson Mabidi from the Church of the Lutheran, the, the, the Lutheran Church of Central Africa Malawi Conference wrote a paper on, um, on uh, uh, salvation by faith alone back in 95 and I'm, I'm quoting a, a piece from him in the, I, either I did it today or I'm going to do it tomorrow. I was writing both 
at the same time today. Anyway, this week I'm quoting that. The difference between finite, infinite, and eternal, there's a difference between all of those. And I, I, I best illustrate those with the mathematical symbols of a dot, a line segment, a ray, and a line. How, how good is your geometry? Uh, but a dot or a line segment, I know a line segment goes from point to point. Remember that stuff? A to B only? That's the life of a cat or a dog or a deer, right? It's finite. It has a beginning, it has an end, that's it. Uh, the life of an angel, angels have a beginning. They were created on one of the days of creation. I have an opinion about which day that was, but it's not important. And then they continue on forever. They don't have an end. Therefore, they are eternal. Or I'm sorry, they are they're, um, deathless and infinite in that sense. But they do have a beginning point. Man has a beginning point, our conception. Man then has a point of death with a time in the grave and then the resurrection gets him the same kind of line that an angel has. That's what we were intended to have. But there's, if I drew it, I would put a dotted line in there for, our, for the grave time. Unless you're Enoch or Elijah, you know. Um, and then, but then God is just a line. No beginning, no end. Back to our text. Um, but turn your face toward the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy. O oh Lord, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant offers before you. Let your eyes be open toward this house day and night, toward the place where you have promised to set your name and to listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Why does Solomon want God to pay attention day and night to the temple and what goes on there? Because there are people there praying day and night. So don't go to bed, Lord. We have a passage about that, about God not going to bed. Isaiah, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yeah. When you hear your servants' pleas for mercy and those of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, then hear your dwelling place, hear in your dwelling place in heaven. Hear and, most important word here, forgive. Um, the forgiveness of sins. Um, I've been adding this to all of my funeral sermons lately. The forgiveness of sins tells us that sin ends in God's eyes at the moment of forgiveness. Well, what's the result of sin? The wages of sin? Death. If sin ends in God's eyes with forgiveness, what also ends? Death. Therefore, if God promises the forgiveness of sin, that's not only the promise of being on a good relationship with God, it's also a sermon about the resurrection of the dead. Every passage in the Bible that describes the forgiveness of sins is also a little sermon on the resurrection of the dead. I read, I was reading the Talmud this morning. Uh, there in, 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 in the tractate that they call um, the, the Sanhedrin, it's toward the end. And a lot of the things in the Sanhedrin 
are about the minim, that's the Jewish name for Christians, and about their arguments with the Christians about stuff about Christ. And one of those arguments is about the preaching of the resurrection of the dead. And the rabbis could only come up with three places in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, where they think that the resurrection is preached. And I, I couldn't help but think these are the dumbest proof passages for the resurrection. I would have put them at the bottom of the list, even if, if even on the list at all. Why not put Abraham sacrificing Isaac way up high on that list? Abraham, who says, We're gonna go, I'm gonna go sacrifice my son over there, and then we will come back, you know, uh, to, to the servants. Um, things like that. And then stuff Isaiah says about the dead springing forth. And so, although the Jews in the, in the, in the, in the tract, in Sanhedrin, the Jews say that, oh, but if, 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 if the prophet says they might spring to life again, that could just be the bones that Ezekiel saw coming to life. And so they dismissed that. But, but, but think of that. Every passage about the forgiveness of sins also points to the resurrection of the dead. It's the end of death. That's the resurrection. At this point, we flip in the, in the we're only halfway through chapter six. So we, we, we go from here into some petitions out to verse 41. I think we're at verse 21 right now. And so there's plenty more to talk about next time. And we'll finish the chapter and then go into, verse, into chapter seven then next time. Okay, there's 36 chapters here. And if I can only do two chapters, one and a half chapters a week. It'll take us a little while to get through it, but we're about to embark on some amazing parts of scripture, the life of Solomon, the approach of foreigners to Solomon and things and, and what happens later in his life and then the kings. And in Chronicles, the author likes to focus on the good stuff. So it's not gonna be such a roller coaster ride, but talking about some, even, even bad King Manasseh, who's, in, in Kings is a terrible man. Even he is described as repenting. So we're going to get, so just consider that. We've got some interesting things to visit here um, in the rest of Second Chronicles. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.